Hello, podcast listeners. It's the fourth day of the podcast takeover. I'm Trisha Johnson. This week, we're on the ground at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado, where leaders from across the globe are gathered. The festival is a program of the Aspen Institute that brings together the most inspired and innovative thinkers, artists, politicians, business leaders, scientists, and others. The mission is to dive deep into a world of ideas, thought, and discussion and spark positive change. Already, we've heard illuminating thoughts and discussion. So that you can take part, I'm giving up the mic this week. A series of hosts, who are also speakers at the festival, will take over and interview Ideas Festival presenters across many disciplines. Emily Yaffe is a journalist and contributing editor to The Atlantic. Previously, she was a longtime contributor to Slate and wrote its advice column, Dear Prudence. In this episode, Yaffe will interview other presenters at the festival. Here are her conversations. I'm here talking to Dr. Helen Fisher, who's an evolutionary biologist. She's at Rutgers University. She is a best-selling author who recently reissued a completely revised version of her best-selling book, Anatomy of Love. She's also the chief scientific advisor to Match.com, and we're going to talk about love in the uh, electronic era. So, welcome, Helen. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Um, so let's talk about the revision of Anatomy of Love. You first published it about almost 25 years ago, and you said you realized you had to almost completely redo it because of all the new information. What is new in love in the past 25 years? Well, I and my colleagues are the first in the world to put people into brain scanners who are madly, happily in love, uh, rejected in love, in love long term. Um, Some of my colleagues used my protocol to put people in the machine uh, using the fMRI uh, in China. Um, We're now studying uh, newlyweds, and we're beginning to map these three basic brain systems that are linked with uh, human mating and reproduction. I think we've evolved three... Sorry, right of the three. Okay, sex drive, feelings of intense uh, uh, sexual craving, uh, linked with the testosterone system in both men and women, uh, feelings of intense romantic love, that obsession, the euphoria, the energy, the focus, the motivation. In this case, actually, the motivation to win life's greatest prize, which is a mating partner. Um, and the third brain system is feelings of attachment. And I think that they evolved for different reasons. Sex drive evolved to get you out there looking for a whole range of partners. I mean, you can have sex with somebody you're not in love with. I think romantic love evolved to enable you to focus your mating energy on just one at a time and start the mating process. And I think that third brain system of attachment enables us to stick with somebody at least long enough to spread our DNA on into tomorrow. And that all forms of love are vastly complex combinations of these three basic brain systems. Of course, your childhood plays a role. Uh, other brain regions uh, play a role. But I think these are three basic regions of the brain. And by the way, they're not going to go away in the digital age. You know, I mean, they lie in the oldest parts of the brain, way below the cortex, way below the emotional uh, uh, systems in brain regions linked with, with drive, with craving, with obsession, with motivation, and with wanting. And they're not going to go away whether you swipe left or right on Tinder. All right. Speaking of swiping and mating through being online, uh, you are an advisor to Match.com. So everyone thinks it's completely blown up uh, meeting, courtship, sex, dating, uh, relationships. Is that true? 
how has moving online changed how we meet and mate? It has certainly changed how we meet, and it has not changed at all how we mate. In fact, you know, no matter where you meet a person, whether you, you know, whether you meet them at Match or you meet them on Tinder or you meet them in a bar, wherever you meet them, when, when you actually sit down with that person, you court the way we probably did 200,000 years ago. You smile the way we did. You laugh the way we did. Uh, you parade the way we did. You listen the way we did uh, forever. In fact, these dating sites are not dating sites. They are introducing sites. We can, I mean, I'm chief scientific advisor to Match, and I've been for many years, and indeed, you know, we can give you the kind of person you say you're looking for, but we don't know your childhood. Nobody knows your childhood. In fact, a lot of people don't even know what they're really looking for. You know, as you grow up, you uh, build what we call, what I call a love map, an unconscious list of what you're looking for in a partner. So on match, we can give you what you say you want. Um, but then you've got to meet the person. The only real algorithm is your own brain. So what are the pluses of this and the minuses? I mean, obviously, you can vastly expand the pool of people. You're not just reliant on your parents or friends or someone you met at church. That seems like good. The flip side is that's bad because uh, at, at your talk here, uh, you were talking about how people meet through one of these services, uh, go on a date, and a few minutes into it, excuse themselves to go to the bathroom and start swiping uh, while they're in the middle of a date. So give me the pluses and minuses of meeting this way. You summed it up so nicely, Emily. I mean, the bottom line is so many more people can meet so many more people. And it's not just the young. You know, uh, one of the fastest growing dating services these days is is for middle-aged and older people called Our Time. I mean, 100 years ago, an older person, uh, uh, you know, moved in with and became a grandparent. These days they live alone. They're looking for romance. They're looking for deep feelings of attachment. And those things keep you alive. So uh, I'm very pleased that uh, people... By the way... Um, you know, I do a national study with Match called Singles in America. We don't poll the Match population. We poll the American population. It's a representative s sample based on the United States Census. And when I ask, uh, over 70% uh, of singles today do feel that the Internet is uh, broadening their ab uh, ability to f meet people and enabling them to find love faster. So uh, singles are for uh, these dating services and for the, uh, you know, the pluses of the Internet. The big problem, and all the dating services know this, is um, what we call cognitive overload. You know, we have so many choices that people end up choosing none. I mean, we lived in little hunting and gathering groups for millions of years. You just didn't meet that many boys, you know. And I think actually, I'm working on this now, I think there's a sort of a sweet spot in the brain that um, after about nine, uh, after you've met about nine people or interacted with about nine people, you begin to be less and less inclined to meet anybody, to, to go out with anybody, to, to fall in love with anybody. So that's one of the things that I say to people who are dating online uh, is that, um, um, you know, after you've met nine people who are within the range of possibility, stop. You know, stop the cognitive overload. Get to know at least one of them more. All of our data show that the more you get to know somebody, the more you like them, and the more likely you are to trigger that brain circuitry for romantic love, and then you're off to the races. Well, that's an interesting point. Are people too hung up on finding the perfect person who arouses me, who makes me laugh, who ticks off every check mark you can uh, 
put down, you talk about someone being in the range because maybe this idea of a soulmate is not so good because if you live in New York and your soulmate is in Buenos Aires, that's just not going to work. You, you talk about you fall in love, one, one of the essentials is that the person is around. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, proximity is absolutely, timing is important, proximity is important. You do tend, still tend to fall in love with somebody from your same socioeconomic background, same general level of intelligence, same general level of good looks, same religious and social values. Your childhood always plays a role. Certainly your reproductive and economic goals play a role. But you know, that's only about 50% of who you are. The rest is your biology, and you know, about 50% of who you are is your temperament, the traits that you, that you, that you inherited. And so uh, I've often wondered, you know, people will say, well, we have chemistry. What do they mean by that? So now what I'm doing is I'm studying the biology of personality. So what is, what is chemistry? Yeah. What are that, can, do you, can you tell us what they're talking about? Absolutely. And, and this is my newest data. And actually, I want to bring this into business, too. I'm, I'm, I'm using more and more of this data on per, biology of personality uh, to understand how people lead, uh, how they innovate, how they learn, how they teach, even how they advertise and how we receive advertisements. Because once you know about the brain, you can know about how this applies to business as well as love. But anyway, this is what I've found. We've evolved four very broad styles of thinking and behaving linked with the dopamine, serotonin, testosterone, and estrogen system. And I've studied um, over 80,000 people. I created a questionnaire that's now been taken by 14 million people in 40 countries. And as it turns out, if you're the high, ex very expressive of the dopamine traits, um, you're novelty-seeking, risk-taking, curious, creative, spontaneous, energetic, mentally flexible kind of person. You are naturally drawn to someone like yourself. You want somebody who is equally willing to... Don't you want someone who keep you from jumping off that ledge? That's exactly what I had hypothesized, and I was wrong. Uh, at least on the dating market, when we watch who you actually choose to go out with, high-energy, curious, creative people go for people like themselves. And then the high serotonin types, the traditional, conventional, follows the rules, the kind that keep you from falling over the edge, just as you say, uh, they go for people like themselves. Traditional goes for traditional. Somebody like Mitt Romney and Anne are actually perfect example. Okay, but what about Bill and Hillary? Bill and Hillary are the perfect examples of the two other types, the high testosterone and the high estrogen. Actually, I think Hillary is the high testosterone and Bill is the high estrogen. People who are very expressive of the testosterone system tend to be uh, analytical, logical, direct, decisive, tough-minded, skeptical, uh, uh, assertive, maybe even aggressive. Um, and they go for the high estrogen type. These people are um, intuitive, imaginative, um, People skills, verbal skills, emotionally expressive. That's Bill. I mean, you know, he's the one that cried at the daughter's wedding. He's the one who the whole world knows he can't stop talking. Uh, you know, his book's 900 and something pages. And in fact, you know, Americans are wondering when we're going to have our first female president. I think we've had our first female president with Bill Clinton. All right, but he was also supposed to be our first black president. So he, he, <laughs> he gets a lot of these crowns. You said something at your talk here that marriage used to be the beginning of the relationship. Now it's the culmination. That seems like a dramatic shift. Can you talk about what that means? 
I'm so glad you heard that. It's one of the most important things. I say that in the end of my book. It's my finale for the book, really. It's called Slow Love. And, you know, I work with Match, and I collect all this data every year. And every year I find that over 50% of singles have uh, uh, had a one-night stand, not necessarily in that year, but in their lives. Over 50% have had a um, friends with benefits. Over 50% have had um, a long-term live-in relationship before marrying. And Americans think that this is just recklessness. And I, I, didn't, I thought that the, that many people, there's got to be some Darwinian reason. And I finally stumbled on it. I read an article, a very fine journal article, that 67% of singles who are living now in a long-term partnership with somebody are terrified of divorce. And so it began to occur to me, maybe this isn't recklessness. Maybe what we're seeing is a real extension of the pre-commitment stage because singles today want to get to know everything they can about a human being before they tie the knot. So then it occurred to me, okay, if there's this long pre-commitment stage before you marry, maybe bad relationships can end. And though maybe, so maybe we're going to have more good relationships, more good marriages, because bad relationships ended before you walked down the aisle. So I did a study with Match, but not of married people, but not on Match. And um, I asked a lot of questions uh, to these 1,100 people. And, but one of the questions was, would you remarry the person you're currently married to? And 81% said yes. Was their spouse looking while they were ticking off whether they would or not? Um, it was an Internet uh, study. And there's a good deal of data that Internet studies, uh, people are more honest um, because they don't have the full environment around them. So, yeah. I hope it's right. <laughs> but by the way, there's other data. Um, uh, a guy that I w do my brain scanning with, Art Aaron, did some um, calls to various people, and he found pretty much the same thing. You know what's so interesting about this, Emily, is that, is that you know, the brain has a big region for negativity bias. We want to think that the technology is destroying courtship. We want to think that all marriages are, are bad. You know, when, you when, you, when, you, when we have so many interviews with therapists, they meet the people who are in bad relationships. It's a shame that we don't talk to some people who study good relationships, and that's me. Okay. Y your book says, talking to younger people, that they're having a lot of kind of casual, uncommitted sex, the classic hookup or friends with benefits, yet they also seem to be extremely conservative in their ideas on marriage. They are very much against straying. Are these contradictory or not contradictory? What does that mean for the kind of marriages young people are going to be making? What's so interesting about that is um, the young are not having a lot of sex and they are not having a lot of hookups. There's a good deal of data now that they all think that the other girl is having more hookups than they are or the other guy is having more hookups than they are. But there was one recent study in 2007, actually I think it was at Duke University, when they asked um, college kids about sex and 53% of uh, women were still virgins and 40% of men were still virgins. and. Um, uh, uh, so they're not having, as a matter of fact, there was a very good article showing that uh, 25 years ago, uh, college students 25 years ago were having more sex than college students are having today. And it's interesting, on Match, I, I asked um, a very interesting question, which was, uh, um, would you make a long-term commitment to somebody who had everything you were looking for, 
but uh, you weren't in love with them. And another question, would you uh, make a long-term commitment uh, to somebody who had everything you were looking for, uh, but you um, didn't find them sexually, uh, weren't drawn to them sexually? The least likely to compromise uh, were older people, and the most likely to say yes to that, to making a long-term commitment to somebody without that sexual or romantic uh, drive were, the, were people in their 20s. These people are practical. I think you hit it on the head. They're practical. They've seen, they've, they've seen their parents go around the block more than once. Uh, I think they're very interested in their careers. What's interesting, really, is that in the past, people, the young were marrying before they had um, their careers settled. Now, marriage is almost a privilege that you get to have after you've sort of built a lifestyle and a career. It's a very sensible generation, actually. But is marriage becoming kind of a more elite institution? You talk about people's terror of marriage. So we're seeing with the unwed birth rates that a lot of people are bypassing it altogether. And um, it seems the country is kind of bifurcating. If you have a college degree, you're much more likely to marry than have children. And that's less true for people without college degrees. Well, it's very true, you know, that uh, 40% of children born in America today, uh, or about 40%, uh, I think it is actually 40%, um, uh, are having their children before they marry. But it is not, um, uh, it's not uh, teenagers. It's people in their late 20s and early 30s, and a good 60% of these people have a live-in partner and have decided to have a child together before they marry. Um, and so it's uh, not... Uh, um, uh, so it's not really the very young who are having the babies. It's, it's people who've already established in their careers. But you're absolutely right that there's much more divorce among the very young and also among the poor. And... Um, the reason I think there's more divorce among the young is because they're so young. And uh, and it's also in the Bible Belt, where you are more likely to feel you need to marry first before you have sex. And so these people actually don't really know their partner in many important ways, and so they will, will divorce. Uh, the poor uh, uh, divorce because, you know, men's roles are sliding. Men are losing their jobs, and women are, are um, you know, uh, retaining their jobs and often uh, in the in the poor uh, sectors uh, the women don't even really want to marry because then they're afraid they're going to have a lifelong person that they will either have to support uh, or after they divorce still have to support so it's much more fragile you give people money you give them positions they're going to go the way the human brain does they're going to love we've got a drive to love and a drive to stay together you know what's interesting in, in the Scandinavian countries um, uh, they're really um, cohabiting instead of marrying but I read a statistic last week that their cohabiting relationships are more stable than ours marital relationships are in America today Helen Fisher thank you so much uh, there's so much more we could talk about uh, people read her book Anatomy of Love thank you, thank you. I'm Jane McGonigal. I'm a game designer and a future forecaster. A future forecaster is someone who thinks about what the future might be like. We don't try to predict the future because then you're stuck waiting for whatever you predicted to happen. We try to figure out what are all of the different possible futures and then we analyze them and evaluate them to see, well, 
Which future would raise people's quality of life? Which future would create a world we want to live in? And then we try to help people make that future the most likely one. Tomorrow I'm going to give a lecture on the science of imagination. One of the things that's really hard to imagine is how things can be different than they are. So when you're trying to think about the future, most people get stuck in their current assumptions about how the world works. And this can prevent people from being inventive and innovative and advocating for social change. And so I'm going to be talking about techniques that you can use to get better at imagining how things could be different. And, and you could practice it in lots of different ways. You can think about how the past could have been different. You can think about, you can try to have empathy for someone whose life is really different from yours. Uh, you can imagine yourself doing things you've never actually done and try to vividly recall it as if you had actually done it. So we're gonna talk about those techniques, but all of those techniques are designed to improve your ability to really think about how the future could be different so that you can become a more effective agent for change or a more effective innovator. I'm Emily Yaffe, contributing editor to The Atlantic Magazine. I'm here talking to Brian Stevenson, who's the executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative based in Alabama, which he founded in 1989. His organization and career is dedicated to helping the poor, incarcerated, and condemned, and fighting racial injustice. A graduate of Harvard Law School, he has argued landmark cases at the Supreme Court, he is the author of Just Mercy, A Story of Justice and Redemption, which is a wonderful book everyone should read, and is the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant, among many other awards. He also teaches law at New York University. So nice to talk to you, Brian. It's great to talk with you as well. We have a black president who is just about to finish his second term in office. That must be something that would have been unthinkable in the childhood you describe in your book, in which there was uh, absolutely overt legal segregation. Yet we also seem to be at a time where there is a high feeling of racial injustice, inequality, and anger in this country. Can you talk about what's going on and where we're at? Well, I think that the um, problems that we've had in this country that flow from our history of racial inequality are problems that have remained largely unaddressed uh, in any meaningful way. I mean, we had slavery in this country, and we never really dealt uh, with the legacy, the real hardship. I mean, I don't think the great evil of American slavery was involuntary servitude. I think the great evil of American slavery was the narrative of racial difference that we created to legitimate slavery, and we haven't really dealt with that. We had decades of racial terrorism and lynching, and we haven't really addressed that. Even the civil rights era, which was defined by segregation, uh, you know, we passed the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, but we didn't really win the narrative war uh, to confront this idea that somehow black people are less than white people. And so now we're in an era where there is mass incarceration, where there is a presumption of guilt and dangerousness that gets assigned to black and brown people. And I think that's the source of the frustration and the anger. And I think it's actually uh, provocative to suggest that the election of Barack Obama is all that is needed to confront uh, 400 years of racial oppression. And, so, and, and in many ways, um, you know, we didn't elect Barack Obama to give something to black people in this country. We elected Barack Obama because he was the best candidate. And we're self-interested enough 
to want to engage whomever we have to engage uh, to save ourselves. I mean, it's like in my state of Alabama, we're a big football state. Love football. Football's not a sport, it's a religion. And Alabama wants to win, and Auburn wants to win. And if they have to field a team of all black players to win, they will do it in an instant. Uh, but at the same time, we have a state constitution in Alabama that still prohibits black and white kids from going to school together. It's unenforceable. But the majority of people in the state have actually voted to keep that constitution twice in the last 10 years, in 2004. Isn't that against federal law? It is, How? A, it is against federal law. It is unenforceable yeah. under the federal constitution. But it's still in the state constitution. It took a statewide referendum. It takes a statewide referendum to get it out. And when we had it on the ballot in 2004, majority of people voted to keep it in. In 2012, an even bigger majority voted to keep it in, even while we have an African American president. And so that disconnect, I think, is part of the explanation of where and how we are. And I think actually, the hostility to President Obama. And the sort of illogic and irrationality around some of uh, uh, his, I think, has actually contributed to this narrative of racial difference, this idea uh, that we look at the world through this racial lens that bars us from experiencing the kind of freedom that many of us talk and, and dream about. What do we do to get to that point, yeah. to finally address yeah. what you say? I think a lot of white people think, look, we've moved past that. Mm -hmm. the, the civil rights laws were enacted. Again, look, just even symbolically look at the president. But you're saying there are things this country has never dealt with. And that, in fact, mass incarceration is an extension of these forces you've that are talked about that are historical. Yeah, well, I think it's hard to say we've gotten past that. Look, right now in the United States, one in three... Uh, black male babies born in this country is expected to go to jail or prison. That wasn't true in the 20th century. It wasn't true in the 19th century. It's true today. Uh, there is this burden of dangerousness and guilt. It follows uh, educated black people. It follows wealthy black people. It follows all people of color. You've experienced Oh, this. I've experienced. I've been in a courtroom uh, with my suit and tie on, ready to do a hearing, first time in the Midwest. And the judge walked out and said, hey, 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 you get back out there in the hallway and you wait until your lawyer gets here. I don't want any defendant sitting in my courtroom Whoa. without their lawyer. What did you do? Well, I, I stood up. The judge started laughing. I stood up and said, oh, I'm sorry, Your Honor, I didn't introduce myself. My name is Brian Stevenson. I'm the lawyer. And the judge started laughing and the prosecutor started laughing. And what I'm, kind of laugh? Embarrassed? Was, uh, or? Funny. Wow. Funny. Not embarrassed. And uh, I made myself laugh because I didn't want to disadvantage my client, which is kind of painful and humiliating. Then my client came in, a young white kid I was representing, and we did the hearing. But afterward, I was thinking, what is it that when this judge saw a middle-aged black man in a suit and tie at defense counsel's table, it didn't even occur to him that that might be the lawyer. And what that is is this narrative. And so what I think we have to do is to begin uh, to talk about things we haven't talked about. Uh, there isn't a single place in this country where you can go and have an extensive, deep, comprehensive experience with the history of slavery. It's 2016, uh, and we have to change that. Uh, we, I live in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, three years ago, Montgomery was a city with 59 markers and monuments to the Confederacy and hardly a word about slavery. We have to change that. We have to resurrect the truth about our history and make it visible and tangible and accessible to everybody, not just in museums where only the motivated go, but in the public spaces. We have to confront 
these false narratives. In my state, Confederate Memorial Day is a state holiday. Jefferson Davis's birthday is a state holiday. Uh, we honor people who did dishonorable things. And if we don't begin to deal more directly with that phenomenon, if we unfurl and proudly display these symbols of resistance to integration like the Confederate flag, or causing injury, uh, I think we have to talk about the terrorism that shaped the demographic geography of America. You know, 90% of the black population lived in the American South in 1910, and over the next 50 years, millions fled uh, to Cleveland and Chicago and Detroit and Los Angeles and Oakland, not as immigrants looking for new economic opportunities, but as refugees and exiles from terror. And we haven't owned up to that terrorism and the way it has shaped our own thinking. And I also think we have to repair the damage that was done uh, by segregation and so many of these other, uh, of these other issues. We've never uh, even thought about what it would take to repair. Uh, you say Do the word- Do you mean uh, financial reparations? I, I think that's the first thing people immediately go to. I mean more than that. Uh, because financial reparations isn't going to be adequate to undo some of the damages. But in the states that denied people the right to vote for decades, I think it's irresponsible to imagine that the passage of the Voting Rights Act is a sufficient remedy. And we've seen over the last 50 years how it has been an insufficient remedy. And I think if those states want to be seen as places that are no longer hostile to voting rights to black people, then they should be thinking about things that they can do to make it clear we want black people to vote. I don't know why in these states you don't automatically get registered to vote if you're black when you turn 18. I don't know why we don't actually create resources and go to the homes of black families on election day and get their vote as a symbol and an expression and a step toward repairing the damage that has been done by decades of disenfranchisement. All those states that didn't allow African Americans to go to schools, uh, I, I think they should be saying, we want you here, we're going to admit you, and we're going to actually charge you half of what we charge everybody else. And we can't do that with bitterness as if we're doing something extra for these. We have to do it with an understanding that we did something wrong and we now need to repair that. The United States government spent $95 billion uh, on, uh, on the GI Bill from 1944 to 1971. We created a white middle class in this country by helping white veterans get homes and, 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 and jobs and training and education. And we largely denied that to the 1.2 million black veterans who also risked their lives. And that barrier, that problem has not been solved. I don't know why we don't want to identify those folks and say to those remaining veterans and their children, we want to help you. We want to do the things that no one did for you in the 50s and the 60s. And that's what I mean by repair. And we do it the way Germany has done it, where they've created a landscape that gives honor to the victims of the Holocaust. Uh, the Germans want you to go to Auschwitz and Birkenbau. And none of us feel like, oh, it's not safe to go to Germany, regardless if we're black or Jewish or whatever. We don't have that opinion, largely, because of the way they have responded. Whereas, uh, I think it's completely legitimate for people of color to say, I don't want to live in Alabama or Mississippi or Louisiana. I'm worried about my status in America. Well, let's talk about that in the face of mass incarceration, which is something you've been talking about and fighting for decades, we seem to have finally come to the starting gate mm -hmm. of saying, wait a minute, what have we done? You've got the ACLU and the Koch brothers working together to say, uh, okay, we've gone too far. 
what are the steps that need to be taken to undo this? And and can you just talk about uh, just briefly a couple of the cases of just shocking sentences? I mm-hmm. reading your book, there 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 are innocent people yeah. on death row and everything. But one thing struck me: this mother mm-hmm. who was serving a ten-year sentence for writing some bad checks for Christmas presents for her children for nominal amounts of money, a 10-year sentence, a woman taking away from her children. That's the kind of thing you see every day. It is. Yeah, I I mean, I think that's the ugliness of mass incarceration. We've done some incredibly cruel things to people. We have people serving life imprisonment without parole for writing bad checks of 30 or $40. What? Yes. Uh, we have states. You, you mean the three strikes? Three strikes, okay. that's right. If you uh, Explain. Sure. So uh, you could go to five different places on a single day and write checks that you don't have the money to cover. Uh, and if they happen to be in different counties or dur- jurisdictions, you could get prosecuted five times. Uh, in most states, if you have three prior convictions, your fourth conviction is going to mandate a life sentence, in some places a life without parole sentence. I'm representing a man now who's 75 years old. He's a disabled combat veteran. 30 years ago, he uh, had uh, three arrests or three convictions for a a week of crime. He committed some misguided burglaries and robberies. Uh, He's done well ever since, uh, but he was growing marijuana. And because he had two pounds of marijuana in his backyard, it's a mandatory sentence of life imprisonment without parole. Uh, he's not and a threat, we're all for and this. we're all paying for this. This man who has a lot of health issues, uh, and you see it in all kinds of categories. The percentage of women going to prison has increased 640 uh, percent, largely because of economic and uh, drug-related challenges. And you see these women. 70 percent of those women are single parents with minor children, which means that when they go to jail or prison, we bear the cost of dealing with these children. But more than that, these children's lives are disrupted. So it is tragic how mandatory sentencing and this misguided war on drugs has created this epidemic of incarceration. Now we have the highest rate of incarceration in the world. What can we do? Well, I think we have to declare an end to the war on drugs. We have to start seeing drug addiction and drug dependency as a health issue rather than a crime issue. We did that for alcoholism. And many of us know people who suffer from alcoholism, and if we saw them going into a bar, we would never think it's appropriate to call the police. Mm-hmm. And the consciousness that makes that judgment the way it is, is the consciousness we need to develop around drug addiction and drug dependency. It is true that people on the right and left now realize that if you go from $6 billion on jails and prisons in 1980 to $80 billion last year, there's a lot of things you're not going to be able to do to help a society evolve. But I think we're going to have to do a lot more than what we've been talking about doing. Most of the reform effort has been focused on Congress. Uh, Only 10% of the 2.3 million people in jails and prisons are in the federal system. Uh, It's really at the state level. It's at the local level. Uh, I think not only do we need to reform uh, laws for drug crimes and eliminate mandatory sentencing, uh, I also think we have to kind of revisit the way we punished even violent offenders. Uh, because those sentences have also gotten very extreme. And uh, I represent children, 13 and 14 years of age, who've been sentenced to die in prison, some for non-homicide offenses. That is one of your landmark Supreme Court cases. Explain what you did. Sure. Well, uh, in 2005, the Supreme Court finally said that it's unconstitutional to execute children. We were one of the only countries in the world that permitted the execution of people who 
had been convicted of crimes when they were teenagers. Um, We then discovered after that ruling that there were thousands of children in this country who had been condemned to die in prison, some as young as 13. Uh, There are 14 states with no minimum age for trying a child as an adult. So I've actually represented 10 and 11-year-old kids facing decades of adult punishment. We house kids in adult jails and prisons where they're at risk of sexual violence and abuse. Uh, And we challenged it. We filed a bunch of cases in in various states uh, and ultimately got before the U.S. Supreme Court. What's that like? Uh, It was great. It's very challenging, very nerve-wracking. Worse Uh, than this? Uh, a little bit, <laughs> uh, but it's still very exciting. Uh, the, the court issued a decision, Graham v. Florida, which has now banned life without parole for children convicted of non-homicides. And a couple of years later, I was back arguing before the court, and we won a case called Miller uh, versus Alabama, uh, which has now ended mandatory life without parole sentences for all children. Congratulations. Thank, Thank you. How do you keep going? You're a Harvard Law School graduate. Mm -hmm. I'm sure your classmates, many of them are making millions. At any point you could have said, all right, I've done my good stuff. Now I'm going to start making money. How do you keep going? You know, I feel fortunate. I I feel like I'm standing on the shoulders of a lot of people who did so much more with so much less that it motivates me to keep doing what, what I can. Uh, to create a healthier environment, to create an, uh, an opportunity for more people. Uh, you know, when I was a little boy, uh, people would come into church and they'd sometimes have testimonies of really difficult hardships. They'd talk about all the unbearable challenges they were facing with poverty and hunger and, and, and all kinds of issues. Uh, but they would always finish their testimonies by singing a song they'd say, wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. Uh, And that's sort of the way I feel about this work. We've got a lot of things that we can point to that really reveal challenges and distress and anguish and suffering. Uh, But I wouldn't take nothing from my journey now. I'm very excited about where we are and about how maybe we can push this country to a healthier, more just place for, for everyone. Thank you so much, Brian Stevenson. It was great to talk to you. And you as well. I'm Forrest Sill. I'm co-editor-in-chief of the student newspaper at the University of Chicago, uh, which is the Chicago Maroon. I'm here talking on two panels. One of them is about freedom of speech and uh, the changing expectations of American universities. And then one is about how millennials are participating in the 2016 election. All the people I know are like intensely political. Um, Maybe that's just the crowd I hang out with, but both conservative and liberal. Uh, I do think there's uh, more of a conservative contingent of millennials than people really feel, but everyone really cares. People recognize that it matters. They're not apathetic about it. They, They just care intensely, whether that's presidential politics or other types of politics. I'm Emily Yaffe, a contributing editor to The Atlantic Magazine, and I'm here this morning talking to Jeffrey Stone, who's a professor of law at the University of Chicago, where he was also the provost and dean of the law school. He is the author of many books on constitutional law, including the forthcoming Sexing the Constitution. He's also a Supreme Court expert, which is what we'll be talking about today. Nice to have you. Delighted to be here. So there was a big ruling at the end of this court session about abortion, and it uh, 
struck down some Texas laws that essentially, as Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, were not designed to protect women's health but to prevent abortion clinics from operating. Um, is this going to mark some kind of end of this seemingly endless struggle? Can the courts quell this issue or are there more cases to come? Will we always be a fight fighting the abortion issue? Oh, I, I think we will always be fighting the abortion issue. I mean, the fact is that a fairly high percentage of the American people uh, believe abortion is fundamentally immoral, and many of them believe it's murder of unborn children. And for people who hold that view, it's easy to understand, even though I don't hold that view, it's easy to understand why they are not going to let this go. Um, and, you know, imagine if, if, if the Supreme Court had said you had a right to kill your children until they're three years old you know, you'd probably be up in arms, as I would be. Well, that's how they feel. So my view about this is, you know, I think they're wrong on the law, but I do understand their passion, and they're not going to let it go. This is going to be an ongoing struggle uh, well into the future. Are there cases coming down the pike on abortion that the Supreme Court is going to grapple with? Um, this was a pivotal decision because if the court had taken the view of the dissenting justices, uh, Roberts, Alito, and Thomas, um, it would effectively had been opened up a green light to states to do everything in their power to make it next to impossible for women to have realistic access to abortion, even though it was not absolutely forbidden. And that wouldn't be true all over the nation. About half the states are fully supportive of abortion, but in the half the states that are uh, opposed to abortion and which would outlaw it if they had the opportunity, um, they have been very aggressive about enacting these laws that, as Justice Ginsburg said, were, were purport to be designed to promote women's health, but were really designed to make it more and more difficult for women to have access to abortion by raising the cost, by decreasing the number of facilities that are available. So what will happen now is um, there are still huge numbers of regulations on the books that are not as obviously inappropriate as the ones that were struck down. And so the question that will continue to come before the court is what happens with these in-between types of regulations, which aren't as dramatic, but which also have a similar effect. It's now a year since the landmark decision legalizing gay marriage. That was also an issue that for decades was highly inflammatory. Uh, President Clinton has apologized for signing the Defense of Marriage Act. Yet, in seemingly a remarkably short time, the controversy has seemed to have basically gone away. The country's accepted it. Do you think this is a settled social issue? Uh, will there be a backlash on this? And why so different? So I think that there's a clear difference between, the, as, as it turns out, between the same-sex marriage and the abortion issue. And fundamentally, it has to do with the passion and commitment of the opponents. That is, again, in the abortion context, for people who are fundamentally opposed to abortion, what's going on is murder of unborn children. That, if you believe that, is intolerable. In same-sex marriage, there are many people who believe this is immoral, um, this is inappropriate, it's inconsistent with the religious beliefs, but it's not the same thing as killing unborn children. And the stakes are therefore, in fact, much lower. And, and the other reality, of course, is that, is that people now know people who are gay. And they have become part of their families, their neighbors, people who work with them. 
And that has had a profound effect on social attitudes about homosexuality, um, to the effect that even people who believe it's immoral don't have the same fury about it that they once did, because now it's their kids and their cousins and their neighbors. And so I think for that reason, that's changed and it's not going to go back. The interesting problem that we now have there is the question about what happens to people who are religious believers who feel that they cannot reconcile their personal religious beliefs with the demand for equality and with respect for gays and lesbians and the rights of gays and lesbians. And what's interesting there is we've gone from a world in which um, a certain set of religious beliefs dictated what people who didn't share those beliefs could and could not do to one in which, and on issues like abortion and contraception and homosexuality, in which now individuals are free to act according to their own personal values and beliefs, and those who hold a certain set of religious beliefs, which used to be dominant, are now saying, please let us at least act in accord with their own religious beliefs, even though we give up on trying to get you to be moral. Um, and that's a really interesting dilemma that the courts are now beginning to wrestle with. Is do you mean the case of I don't want to bake the cake for with two grooms on top of it? Uh, yes, exactly. Okay. The the kind of issue where you know everything from the Catholic priest who says you can't you can't make me perform a marriage of a same sex couple, to the, but the laws don't require that, do they? A law prohibits discrimination you know, on the basis of sexual orientation. The question is, how does that apply to that context? Most laws would have exemptions. But the question is, do you have to have exemptions in those contexts? And we, we generally do have exemptions for religious officials. But the question is, how far down the line does that extend? Does it extend all the way to the baker and the florist? Um, and, you know, I'm actually ambivalent about this myself because I, I actually am not religious myself, but I do respect the fact that there are people who have deeply, sincerely held religious beliefs. And I don't think we should compel people to act um, in violation of those beliefs without a very good reason. And if there are other bakers around, you know, why do we need to make this person do that or give up his profession? So I think it's a hard issue, in fact. You've denounced what you say is the Republican obstruction of the nomination of Merrick Garland to replace late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. You have a plan to call the Republicans bluff, uh, although uh, obviously they're not bluffing. I guess that's the wrong phrase. Please explain what you would like President Obama to do. And, and also, are you just generally concerned about the extreme politicization of the Supreme Court nominations and how that's changed over the past few decades? Well, I think it's important to note that, that despite the politicization of the court and the process, the fact is that almost every nominee in the last couple of decades has been confirmed. So there's been lots of objections, but in the end, with all the dust settles, Justice Scalia got confirmed, Justice Thomas got concerned, Justice Ginsburg got con confirmed. So I, I think it has been politicized. I think it's much worse in the lower courts, in fact. The reason the Garland case is so divisive is because the court is divided basically four to four, and Garland placing, replacing Scalia will in fact have a significant impact on the direction of the Supreme Court across a range of issues, including campaign finance and gun control and affirmative action, um, and, uh, and so it's understandable 
that the stakes are very high. Nonetheless, the Republican behavior here, I think, is unconscionable. It's completely inconsistent with 225 years of history. Um, and now it should not make, be allowed to stand. They make the argument, oh, no, 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 we've got precedence for this. It's inappropriate for a president in the final months of his term to nominate someone. It's completely false. I mean, the truth is there have been um, 13 instances in which a president in the last year of his term um, has an opportunity to nominate a, a, a Supreme Court justice. And this includes people like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln and uh, Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt and Ronald Reagan. Um, and every one of them got their nominees confirmed. The, the only time there's been a problem there is when the vacancy arises after the new president has been elected. And that's not the case here by a long shot. So the truth is there's no justification for what they're doing. It's pure politics. It's pure power grab. And, and I do think it's completely unconstitutional. The problem is they have the power, and there's no legal remedy for this. We haven't structured the Constitution or the law so as to allow a court to say you can't do this. Um, and so they're going to do this. And, and, and their strategy is basically heads I win, tails you lose. Because what they figure is we're not going to confirm Garland, even though he's very moderate and relatively old for a nominee. Uh, Obama was clearly um, giving them a, a pretty good deal by, by nominating Merrick Garland. Um, and they're not going to confirm him. They're going to wait and see who wins the presidential election. Um, if Trump wins, then they'll never confirm Garland. They'll wait, and Trump will have that critical fifth vote. Fifth vote. Um, if Clinton wins, then they'll probably confirm Garland because he's the best possible nominee they could have. So it's a win-win situation for them and a lose-lose situation for the Democrats. Because what they're doing, I think, is completely unacceptable, what I've suggested is that the president... Um, in conjunction with uh, Hillary Clinton and with Merrick Garland, should basically say, okay, if you don't confirm Garland by a particular date, say September 15th or October 1st, then I'm going to withdraw the nomination. And when Clinton wins, um, she will be free to nominate uh, a 36-year-old William Douglas. And assuming the Democrats win the Senate, um, that person will be confirmed. So you take it or leave it. Either you take Garland now, and you accept that compromise, or you're going to get screwed. And I think unless the Democrats do that, then the Republicans get away with this, and it will then become a model for future nominations, which is really destructive for the future of the confirmation process. Can you talk a little bit about what's ahead for the court? Uh, obviously, inevitably, more mortality. Are we on? Are we looking at a horizon of a dramatically different court? Well, we have three justices who are getting on in years, uh, Ginsburg, uh, Breyer, and Kennedy. And certainly in the next eight years, uh, one would predict that all three of them would step down. Um, and even in the next four years, one would expect at least one or two of them might well step down. So whoever the next president is will have a great opportunity to shape the court um, in ways that will have implications across a broad range of issues um, for the next 20 years or so. So the stakes in this election are extremely high, not only for all the other reasons why they're extremely high, but on issues that people care a lot about, like campaign finance and abortion and affirmative action and gun control and the like, um, those, those issues, which are determined very largely by the Supreme Court, um, are up, up for grabs right now. Your new book is titled Sexing the Constitution, a very provocative title. Can you just describe briefly what the book's about, what you, what you want it to do? Sure. So uh, the book 
was, I've written, as you noted, a bunch of different books. This one was unique for me because usually when you write a book, you have a pretty good idea what you know and what you're going to say. In this instance, it was entirely curiosity-driven on my part. Um, what I wanted to understand myself is why we have the attitudes we do about sex, where they came from, how deeply rooted are they in fact, um, and how have we come around to evolving and changing them over time. And so what the book does is try to go back and figure out, um, ultimately, quote from the beginning, it goes back to Greece and Rome and, and figures out what, was the, what were the attitudes about sexuality there, um, and, um, and then looks at the impact of religion, and in particular Christianity, and how that completely transformed uh, social, legal, and moral attitudes about sex. From what to what? Well, basically, from in the, in the ancient world, pre-Christianity, uh, sex was viewed as a natural part of human behavior. It wasn't deemed sinful. It wasn't deemed moral. Uh, sex was okay unless you hurt somebody else. Um, homosexuality was perfectly okay. Uh, and uh, there was a basically what we would think of today as a kind of a freewheeling attitude about sex. One way to think about this is it's taken us 2,000 years to get back to where the Greeks and Romans were. Um, are we back? Are, are we? Increasingly so, yeah, increasingly so. And there were no rules against, against sexual expression. There was no such thing as obscenity. Um, and one of the things we don't understand is those rules in terms of law in the United States are relatively recent. There were no, no laws against obscenity in the United States until the mid-19th century. There were no laws against abortion in the United States until the mid-19th century. There were no laws against contraception in the United States until the mid-19th century. There were laws against homosexuality, uh, but they weren't enforced for all practical purposes uh, against consenting adults. Um, and basically, it wasn't until, the, until the, the religious explosion beginning in the early 19th century with the Second Great Awakening um, and then with the moralism of the evangelical age in the late 19th century and Anthony Comstock that the country began um, moralizing its attitude about sex. Um, and basically, we've been fighting a way out from under that for the last 60 years. Um, and the Supreme Court has played a central role in that. Uh, in its decisions about obscenity and about the right to contraception and Roe v. Wade and the right to abortion. And now over the last decade with um, Lawrence v. Texas and, and now Obergefell. Explain what, that, what Lawrence v. Lawrence Texas, v. Texas reversed a prior Supreme Court decision and held that a state could not constitutionally prohibit uh, same-sex uh, uh, sexual behavior. So before that, the Supreme Court had said that a state can make it a criminal offense for two men or two women to engage in sexual activity. And in Lawrence v. Texas, uh, the court held that that was unconstitutional, that individuals had a constitutional right to intimacy that extended to that, and that the historical religious justifications for prohibiting that form of sodomy were not an, an adequate justification uh, in, the, in the terms of the Constitution uh, to permit these kinds of laws to, to exist. So we've seen this incredible transformation. What we see now on the Internet in terms of sexual expression, what we see now with, the, with the contraceptives being available you know, in Walgreens, what we see with, with um, uh, abortion being a constitutional right, and now what we see with same-sex marriage, um, that's the product of a fundamental constitutional revolution and social revolution in our nation. And the book sort of goes back and tries to figure out, you know, how did we get to where we were before that? And it talks a lot about the people like Margaret Sanger um, with the early years of contraception and fighting against the Comstock rules. Um, and some of the early uh, uh, advocates of sexual expression and, and fighting against rules prohibiting obscenity, um, and how the Supreme Court eventually got itself into the business of looking at these things, which 100 years ago would have seemed unthinkable. Jeffrey Stone, thank you so much. When will your book be out? It'll be out in March. Okay. Sounds great. 
Thank you very much. Appreciate the conversation. It's a pleasure. That's our podcast takeover host and Aspen Ideas Festival presenter, Emily Yaffe. She's a contributing editor to The Atlantic and formerly wrote the Dear Prudence column for Slate. You heard her discussions with other festival presenters on the ground at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Watch for other episodes this week that feature more festival presenters taking over the podcast. Podcaster Franklin Leonard, journalist Maria Inahosa and Perry Peltz, and comedian and radio host Pete Dominic are interviewing festival presenters and experts in a variety of topics. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service. Discover more about the Aspen Ideas Festival at aspenideas.org. Follow the festival year-round on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin, Eliza Costas, and myself with music by Gillicuddy and Poddington Bear. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs. Thank you for listening.